Welcome back to this bonus feature um, related to airway. We're still here with Dr. Wendy James. We wanted to give you just a quick couple minutes here um, to apply everything we talked about in that previous episode to now when, when are we going to execute those procedures? When are, what are the cues we're looking for? What are the things that are going to stimulate us to move from one intervention to the next and when should we do it ideally we do it before it gets bad right ideally we're pre we're um, not reactive and we're proactive that's the goal of being a good paramedic so dr james why don't you talk a little bit just about um, what you do in the ed and what you would expect a provider to do in the field when they're working down these algorithms and starting to deal with these tricky airways i think the big thing i want to emphasize is is when do you decide you need to emergently take the airway because of whatever situation. When do you decide, I need to either call for an intercept so somebody can intubate this patient, or am I gonna use a supraglottic? When are you gonna take that airway? And so I want you to think about four things. Do you need to take that airway from the patient to protect that airway? So they've got blood, or they have some sort of facial injury, or they have a head injury that we think their bleeding may lead to herniation and they're not going to have good control of their own respiratory status as their situation declines. Or they're going to get in a helicopter because it's very hard to intubate once we're in the helicopter. So oftentimes airway protection is one of the reasons we will intubate for. They're agitated and swinging. Two other reasons I want you to think about obviously is hypoxia. Severe hypoxia that you can't correct with your BVM and you've got to get a better way to get it in, hypoxia is definitely a reason to intubate somebody if you can't correct it with your normal maneuvers of oxygen, nasal cannula, high flow, BVM, then you know to think about intubating or taking that airway. And it's important to remember that if you're giving someone BVM ventilations with high flow oxygen and they're not getting better, something really terrible is wrong. Like if most people should respond pretty well to BVM and oxygen, if you're giving BVM and oxygen and you're still having an oxygen or ventilation issue, um, this is going to be something that the ED and the paramedics and the flight physicians and all these people are really going to be jumping into. It's not, it's not an easy fix. So right. If your SAT's not coming up, there's either obstruction of that airway, there's a pneumothorax that's keeping you from getting more oxygen in because the, the lung is actually down, um, that there's some sort of um, either equipment failure, like maybe your oxygen isn't on, have you blown off? Like you've got to kind of do a, a problem solve around why their SAT isn't coming up. Um, and then did you stack their breaths and they're so full that they can't take any more air in, they're not getting air oxygenation. So hypoxia is definitely a reason to take the airway away from the person. Hypercarbia, same deal. If they, their carbon dioxide level is so high, they're not going to have a drive anymore. They may be unconscious. And we know that hypercarbia causes decrease in mental status and decreased drive so that you want to ventilate them and you're going to have to ventilate them by taking the airway. And the other reason is what we call um, excessive respiratory load, or really, are they just tired? Are they unable to take the load that they need? Are they acidotic and they're having to breathe so fast and they just don't have the musculature and the strength to do it anymore? So some people, especially asthmatics, will say, I'm just too tired to breathe anymore, and you've got to be ready to take that airway. Yeah, and it's important to remember, for those of you that have learned the acid-base 
buffer system, just remember that when we start dealing with um, hypercarbia and we start dealing with the changes in pH, this stuff gets really, really technical, especially if you run them on the ventilator. If you're running them on the ventilator from Boston to Burlington, you better figure out how you're going to manage that and keep track of it. Remember that when we have a change in end tidal CO2 by 10, you're going to have a change in pH by 0.08 in the opposite direction. And for those of you that are really interested in this stuff and you've maybe done some critical care work or whatever, just remember that um, if you have someone and they're, they're sitting there at 70 you know, as an end tidal, something bad is going to be happening with their pH. They become really acidotic, then they start having trouble with their enzymes, then they're, eventually the drugs don't work and things get really, really, really bad. And one or two, three breaths and the volume that are off can really make a huge problem with the patient. I'm sure you've had a, a transfer come in with, you know, some rural service or something. Maybe they don't use a vent very much. They show up and, you know, the vent settings are just a little bit off. And now the patient was sick and now they're really sick and they got to go to the ICU and they have this huge vent protocol they have to interact to just start to get the patient back to normal. And literally they just need to put the vent on 16 rather than 12. Um, so it's something simple that can derail the patient pretty quickly. If patient's breathing fast, make sure you breathe fast for them. There are certain overdoses where patients will breathe very fast. There's certain acidotic situations where the patient will breathe fast. They are trying to deal with their own acid base problem by breathing fast. So when you take the airway, either by a bag valve or by intubation, you have got to match what they were doing beforehand, especially if it's an overdose, specifically an aspirin overdose. If you do not bag them at the same rate they were doing before you took the airway, they will get so acidotic they will actually die. So you've got to think about what's causing the respiratory acidosis or the speed of breath. That is the one caveat. That aspirin overdose is going to nip you in the butt. So otherwise, you should be okay taking the airway, slowing them down, putting them on 12 to 16 as a normal rate. Um, caveat being big asterisk, aspirin overdose. Yeah, and I, I think another one to mention, too, is the DKA. If you have the unresponsive DKA patient, without getting too much into it, let's just say in my life I've had a scenario that I was graded on, and the patient was in DKA, and they were breathing at 34 times a minute, and the oxygen was okay, the end tidal was really high, and uh, and they were asking me, was, where I, was I going to use the BVM ventilations on the patient? Am I going to try to slow them down? And I said, absolutely not. No way. No way. I'm going to meet them exactly where they are and bring them to the hospital. And that scenario was designed to see if I recognized that that patient was trying to blow off the ketones and get rid of that acidosis, and it, the patient's compensating their metabolic acidosis with the resp with the high respiratory rate. And they wanted to know that I recognized that and I wasn't going to jump on and start forcing all that, you know, all that acid back into their body. And I think that's something that people should keep in mind too. Just pay attention to what the body's doing because the body's doing something for a reason. It doesn't just randomly spin a wheel and pick a respiratory rate. It's doing something. I think what we're starting to figure out as physicians is that if we look at the body and let it do what it normally does, it actually does a better job than what we're doing. And so part of the changes with COVID care in ARDS has actually been because we finally stopped getting in the middle and watched what the human body would do and what it would want to do. And now we're supporting that rather than changing that. So we are actually having more success with COVID by doing less 
and getting the heck out of the way. And that's one of the places I feel like I'm so susceptible to get in the weeds because I don't have a ton of experience with ventilators. Because if you take somebody that's compensating either respiratory or metabolically, and all of a sudden I throw them on a ventilator and I say, I've been to paramedic school, I know what to do, and I click a button, now I've just overridden, especially if they're paralyzed, I've overridden their compensatory mechanisms, and that's where we get in the weeds. Because who do you think is going to react better? An acid-based buffer system intrinsically inside of their own body that's actively measuring the levels every millisecond or or somebody who's sitting on the outside looking at a screen tell, and a patient and saying, I, I think we need to do this because the book on page 27 said that. So just keep in mind that mm-hmm. we want to treat the patient at the machine that comes into play at every level. Don't be afraid to get the patient to a medical center early, especially if you anticipate problems with the airway, right? For, uh, you know, those partial choking patients, remember, they're potentially unstable. We don't want to just sign a 1093 and lie them down and tell them to go take a nap. We want to get them to definitive care so that stuff can be taken care of. Um, pay attention to ventilation and oxygenation. Both of them need to be working properly. And for those of you that are at the A or the paramedic or the critical care level, we got to be looking at the end tidal caponometry too. We can't just be looking at one piece. We got to look at it all together in, a, in an encompassing picture. And when all else fails, trust your instinct. If you, one of the best pieces of information I got from one of my teachers was if you walk in and you notice they're breathing, something is wrong with it. If it's loud, if it's fast, if it's slow, if it's not there, if it's um, wheezy, if it's crackly, if it's if there's sputum, you don't normally notice people breathing. And if you don't believe me, next time you're sitting and watching TV with your family, try to think about, do you notice they're breathing? Probably not. But if you walk in and you're... Your uncle or your grandpa's, you know, wheezing or coughing or has some sort of change, you're going to notice it. So if you walk into a patient and it's something you notice, pay attention. Trust your instincts. You noticed it for a reason. That was good advice. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for for, uh, joining us today. Hopefully you guys picked something up on it. Hopefully this little bonus feature kind of helped you think about how to take the things we talked about in that airway episode and apply it to the real world. So um, good luck out there. Don't be afraid to get on the phone and call the doctors. You have uh, people like Dr. James available to you. And you know now that if she picks up the phone, she's going to be able to understand and interpret everything you're telling her. And they're going to be able to give you some direction if you feel like you're in the weeds. Good luck, everybody.